In Iran, a pair of explosions killed more than 100 people and wounded many more. This after a senior Hamas leader was killed in Lebanon. No one has claimed responsibility for either incident. The U.S. says it was not involved and it doesn't believe Israel was either. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. The Iranian government calls the blast a terrorist attack. More coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, reaction from the Harvard community to the resignation of the university's first black president, Claudine Gay. Some feel she never got a fair shot at leading the school. On the other hand, there are others who believe the plagiarism allegations and her response to anti-Semitism on campus was just too damning. And this year, Uber will offer its platform to London's black cabs, but cabbies have to pass an encyclopedic test of London street geography, and they are not impressed. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. More tensions in the Middle East today. A pair of explosions in Iran killed more than 100 people at an event honoring an Iranian general killed by a U.S. drone in 2020. There have been no claims of responsibility. Palestinians in the occupied West Bank, meantime, are mourning the death of a senior Hamas official killed yesterday in a still unclaimed drone attack in Beirut that's feeding fears of a broadening war. NPR's Nina Kravinsky has more from Ramallah. Protesters chanted Salah El-Aruri's name in the center of Ramallah today. Some protesters carried Hamas flags. El-Aruri is one of the founders of Hamas's military wing. He'd spent recent years in Lebanon working on a closer relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah. Lebanese officials blame Israel for El-Aruri's assassination. Israel has not acknowledged responsibility. Chants called for revenge for the killing of El Arouri and solidarity with Iran-backed militant groups in other countries, Hezbollah in Lebanon and Houthis in Yemen. El Arouri's death has sparked fears of a wider regional war. Israel and Hezbollah already engage in daily cross-border fighting. Businesses across the West Bank also shut down today as part of a general strike in response to El Arouri's killing. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Ramallah. Congress is starting the new year once again facing a government shutdown that could potentially go into effect later this month. In a briefing today, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre said Americans want Congress to work together with President Biden on the issues that matter. But instead of entering this year with a new approach to deliver for the American people, House Republicans are prioritizing baseless impeachment stunts. The House has launched an impeachment inquiry into Biden based on the business dealings of his son. And House Republicans are planning impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports they are keeping a focus on the Biden administration's policies at the border. House Speaker Mike Johnson led a delegation of dozens of House Republicans to visit a border community in Eagle Pass, Texas. Separately, House Homeland Security Chairman Mark Green announced his committee will take up articles of impeachment against Secretary Mayorkas next week. Green argues Mayorkas's quote, failure to fulfill his oath of office demands accountability. In the Senate, talks continue in the quest for a bipartisan compromise that will address the surge of migrants at the border. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. An imam in Newark, New Jersey, was shot this morning outside of his mosque. Police are still investigating a motive. Governor Phil Murphy says prayers are with Imam Hassan Sharif and promised law enforcement would protect New Jersey's Muslims and people of all faith. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The country's first large-scale offshore wind farm hit a historic milestone today, sending its first power to the electric grid. It was a big moment for Vineyard Wind, but it's arriving with a few growing pains. Here's WBUR's Barbara Moran. Vineyard Wind was supposed to have five turbines sending power to the grid by the end of 2023. Instead, they have one turbine plugged in a couple of days late. Ken Kimmel is with Avangrid, one of the co-owners of Vineyard Wind. He says they're just being cautious. There was testing, there were issues that had to get resolved in order to inject that first power in the grid. The important thing is it happened and we're now on a path to operating this facility. The company expects to have five turbines operating at full capacity in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Governor Moore Healy is awarding nearly $400,000 in grants to support local water management projects. State officials say the grants will help communities build infrastructure that's resilient to climate change issues such as drought and extreme precipitation. Abington and Rockland's Joint Waterworks got more than a quarter of that money for a local project. Harvard's Kennedy School professor and former NAACP president Cornell Brooks says he is distressed by the events that led to the resignation of former Harvard president Claudine Gay. She was the university's first black president. Brooks tells WBUR's Radio Boston that Gay's opponents accused her of being an affirmative action and diversity hire. And they attach any perceived failings or flaws or uh, mistakes to her being black and her being a woman. Gay came under fire by some for controversial congressional testimony about anti-Semitism on campus and because of allegations of plagiarism. In her resignation letter, Gay said it has been distressing to have doubt cast on her commitment to confronting hate and upholding scholarly rigor. Massachusetts' newest professional women's hockey team makes its debut tonight. The Boston team will play in the new professional women's hockey league. Its home games, including tonight's, will be played at the Songus Center in Lowell. Faceoff is set for 7 o'clock against Minnesota. The other teams in the league include Toronto, New York, Montreal, and Ottawa, none of which yet have names. This is WBUR in the forecast. Look for a wintry uh, feel overnight tonight. Cloud cover lasting all night into tomorrow morning, about 30 degrees overnight. And for tomorrow, sunshine eventually pushing through the clouds. Temperatures in the low 40s. 40 in Boston now at 407. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve higher education for career success among underserved populations through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Is the war in the Middle East widening? Whether it would eventually expand beyond Israel and Gaza has been a key question since the attack on October 7th. And today we are tracking two major developments that prompt me to ask the question. The first is in Iran, where today a pair of explosions killed more than 100 people and wounded many more. The other in Lebanon, where a senior Hamas leader has been killed. Now, no one has claimed responsibility for either incident. We are going to hear next from two NPR Correspondents with deep experience covering the region in a moment, Jane Araf, who has just landed in Beirut. But first, NPR's Peter Kenyon, who follows Iran from his base in Istanbul. Hey, Peter. 
Hi, Mary Louise. So these explosions in Iran come on the fourth anniversary of the U.S. assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. And I gather the bombs went off as a procession of people who were marking that anniversary in his hometown as this was underway. What else do we know? Well, officials said the explosions were detonated by remote control uh, as people walked along a street in the southeastern city of Kerman. Uh, emergency crews said many of those injured were in critical condition, suggesting the death toll could rise. Uh, General Soleimani himself was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Iraq in 2020, uh, not far from the Baghdad airport. And since his assassination, Soleimani has been lionized by Iran's leaders as, as a kind of a symbol of the country's resistance to oppression by the West in general, and the United States in particular. And as it happens, this isn't the first time this particular road in Kerman was the scene of casualties. In 2020, a funeral ceremony for General Soleimani on the same road saw a stampede breakout that left 60 people dead. Oh, I remember that terrible tragedy as well. What kind of reaction are we hearing so far from officials in Iran to these explosions today? We are starting to get some reactions. Uh, the head of the judiciary, Khalam Hossein Mosseni Eje, blamed the attack on, quote, blind-hearted terrorists that are hired by the arrogance. Now, arrogance is a term often used by Iranian officials uh, when they want to condemn the U.S. or other Western countries. And now he also said a massive military and security operation had been launched to discover who was behind the attack. Uh, separately, Iran's interior ministers quoted as saying this was the second of the two explosions that caused the most damage and casualties. And he basically said the whole city was effectively under military control. Okay. And I want to follow on something I heard you say, which is that Soleimani has been lionized since his death as a symbol of resistance to the West. Just re remind people listening how big a deal General Soleimani was in Iran, why an explosion at an event to mark the anniversary of his death would be so sensitive. Well, Qasem Soleimani was a commander of the Quds Force. That's an elite part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which itself is a key part of Iran's military. And now Soleimani joined the IRGC, the Guard Corps, very early, not long after the Islamic Revolution that toppled the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran. Uh, he fought in the nearly decade-long Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, later he turned up in Afghanistan, where he helped the so-called Northern Alliance in its fight against the Taliban. Now, he went on to join the Quds Force, which played a major role in supporting Iran's proxy militias. Uh, these are groups including Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, a number of militias in Iraq. Uh, he was basically seen as playing a central role in Syria as well, helping President Bashar al-Assad when his regime was under attack during the Arab Spring. Soleimani is seen as an important actor in helping to spread Iran's influence in the region and beyond as Tehran developed its technique of using militias in other countries to fight its enemies. Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Mary Louise. And let me bring in NPR's Jane Araf on the ground for us tonight in Beirut, Lebanon. Hey, Jane. Hi, Mary Louise. You know, it's funny, I remember covering the fallout from the assassination of General Soleimani with you. Um, four years ago, I was in Iran and you were across the border in Iraq. We come to you today to discuss another assassination there in a suburb of Beirut. This happened yesterday. One of the founders of Hamas's military wing was killed. Israel has not claimed responsibility, but it feels worth noting Israel has vowed to target Hamas officials in other countries, right? They have. And the person who was killed is a pretty big deal. Salah al-Aruri, who was not just the founder of the military wing, but um, instrumental in relations between Hamas and Hezbollah and 
and other countries. He always said he expected to be assassinated. And in fact, he was killed in what the Lebanese government said was an Israeli drone strike. This was on an office building in South Beirut, which really brings that war home to Lebanon in a different way than fighting between Iran-backed Hezbollah and Israel at the border that most people never see. And as you mentioned, Israel had warned after the October 7th start of the war that it would target Hamas officials in other countries. And Hamas leader Hassan Nasrallah had said even before that, that if Israel assassinated any officials in Lebanon, Hezbollah, the major player here, would retaliate. So basically, Mary Louise, as much as people are upset that Israel appears to have launched drone strikes in the capital city, they're perhaps even more afraid that any large-scale Hezbollah retaliation could go spiraling into a conflict that could be become out of control. Yeah, I mean, that that leads me towards some of the bigger questions I have. I mean, how should we think about this, about the danger of Hezbollah, another armed group getting involved in the Israel-Hamas war? Yeah, well, they're already involved in the sense that Nasrallah says they're doing their bet by attacking Israeli forces across the border with Israel to divert Israeli resources from Gaza. So the two sides have been launching attacks against each other since the war began. But this assassination is a whole different ballgame. And in a speech in Beirut today, one that had been previously scheduled to mark the death of General Soleimani, Uh, The Hezbollah leader accused the U.S. of extending the war in Gaza, and he vowed that Israel could expect a, quote, response and punishment for the assassination of al-Ruri in Beirut. And here he pledges that if the, quote, enemy launches a war on Lebanon, our fighting will be without ceilings or boundaries or rules. And even though it is four years ago since that U.S. airstrike killed Soleimani in Baghdad, that strike, as you saw in Iran and ISIL in Iraq, did have huge repercussions, not all of them contributing to stability. Oh, so here's my big picture question for you, Jane. As a longtime watcher of the region, do these events, these last couple of days, raise the risk of the current war in the Middle East expanding? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I certainly did not see this coming. And I think we're seeing a different Middle East where some of the balance of power has shifted in the last three months and perhaps become more fragmented. I mean, we've seen an expansion of attacks on U.S. targets by groups aligned with Mm -hmm. Iran, but not necessarily directed by them, Mm -hmm. limits of U.S. influence. But really what we're seeing, I think, for the first time in years is a realization that the lack of Palestinian homeland is deeply destabilizing. Jane Araf in Beirut. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Mary Louise. Whether you thought of it as Barbenheimer or as the bombshell in the bomb, the double whammy of a hot pink comedy. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And an atom bomb biopic. Let's go recruit some scientists. Led Hollywood to $9 billion of ticket sales in North America last year. That is well ahead of 2022 and pulling closer to healthy pre-pandemic levels. But revenues are expected to be down sharply in the coming year. We asked NPR's Bob Mondello to explain. On one level, it's obvious. Overlapping strikes by Hollywood's writers and actors stopped film production cold. You guys ever think about dying? 
from May 2 to November 9, a little over six months. In other words, the film industry lost 50% of its production time in 2023, and that means fewer movies will be ready for theaters in 2024. The studios delayed a few big pictures. See possible futures. Dune 2, for instance. It's only fragments. And shuffled some others so there'd be a semblance of normalcy through the holidays. But even with a lot of scrambling to get other films finished, there will be many fewer openings in the next few months. I do see a way. There is a narrow way through. Currently on tap through April are just 31 wide releases, meaning films opening in at least a thousand theaters, compared with 44 a year ago. And fewer movies means revenues will likely be down. This prophecy is how they enslave us! Adding to the problem, theaters this year can't rely on Christmas blockbusters playing themselves out to get through January and February. Spider-Man and Avatar sequels dominated the previous two Christmases and each made hundreds of millions of dollars after New Year's. Wonka, Aquaman, Color Purple didn't bust any blocks in the first place and definitely won't be doing that. Less talked about is the fact that there are fewer cinemas now. Theater chains staring down bankruptcy at the start of the pandemic, when nearly all of the nation's multiplexes were dark for months, permanently closed many of their weaker locations. The Cinema Foundation, an industry group, says that in December of 2019, there were 41,000 screens in North America. Two thousand of them disappeared during the pandemic. Add in franchise fatigue, even for previously indestructible legacy heroes. Give them hell, Indiana Jones! Plus an industry-wide pandemic strategy that pushed audiences to streaming, and there's a steep hill to climb. That said, there are reasons for optimism, even if 2024 is down by the billion dollars that industry analysts are predicting, those same analysts are calling Hollywood's 2025 schedule robust, and indeed it's crammed with potential crowd-pleasers that got pushed back by the strikes. A new Avatar, another Fast and Furious, a new Star Wars… Maybe the business will bounce back. Hey, it's a dream factory. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Coming up in about 15 minutes at the tender age of 16, a British teenager is poised to win the World Championship of Darts. That story and much more is still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. A January plunge for Wall Street stocks today. The Dow gave up three-quarters of a percent. S&P lost eight-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down one and two-tenths percent. Several Boston-area locations of the restaurant chain TGI Fridays abruptly closed this week. The company is shutting down 36 underperforming restaurants in the Northeast, including in Dedham, Danvers, Mansfield, Seekonk, North Attleboro, and Marlboro. More than 80% of employees will be offered jobs at other venues. According to the company's website, the closures will leave seven TGIF restaurants in the state. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, 
Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Lots of clouds out there falling to just below freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow may take a while, but the sun should burn through the clouds. Temperatures in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny and colder. Then clouds return for Saturday and may produce some snow and rain on Sunday, a blustery day Sunday with highs close to 40. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The extremely strict abortion bans in Texas won again in the federal courts yesterday. The federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the state of Texas and its Attorney General Ken Paxton. It said that the Biden administration cannot enforce a law governing emergency medicine to make sure patients get abortions in cases where their lives are threatened by a pregnancy. Julie Rovner of KFF Health News is here to help us unpack this ruling. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? I'm well. So, Julie, what is the emergency medicine law that is at the center of this case, and what did the Biden administration do to spark this challenge from the state of Texas? Well, the law is called MTALA, which stands for the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. It was passed in 1986, and it requires hospitals that take Medicare, which is almost all of them, to at very least examine any patient who comes to their emergency department, regardless of the patient's ability to pay. Those who are found to have emergency medical conditions, in that case, the ER must provide at very least enough care to stabilize the patient. The law's original intent was to prevent hospitals from turning away patients without health insurance. Now, after the Supreme Court overruled Roe in 2022, the Biden administration reminded hospitals that if that emergency stabilizing treatment requires an abortion, that federal law overrides any state ban. To the contrary, Texas and a couple of anti-abortion medical groups objected to that, saying it was an overreach by the Biden administration to require every emergency room physician basically to perform abortions, and they filed this lawsuit. Okay, and Julie, this ruling, what exactly does it say? Well, basically, the three-judge panel, two judges appointed by President Trump and the third by President George W. Bush, said that Texas was right and the federal government was wrong, that MTALA does not require any specific forms of medical care, and that the administration's guidance amounted to an expansion of the law. Now, the ruling could put doctors in Texas in a very difficult spot where providing an emergency abortion could be a violation of state law, but where not providing it could be a violation of federal law. I mean, there are a lot of states in the mix here, but I I understand that this has an interesting comparison to something happening in Idaho. That's right. Very similar situation. That case hasn't been fully argued yet, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has put Idaho's abortion ban on hold to the extent that it conflicts with MTALA, which is a win for the Biden Justice Department for the moment, and the opposite of the Texas ruling. And what is likely to happen next now that we have these conflicting decisions? 
Well, Idaho's attorney general has already asked the Supreme Court to step in and allow Idaho to enforce its ban while the case works its way through the rest of the Court of Appeals. So in a way, this case is already at the Supreme Court. Now, the justices don't have to act on that request. The emergency petition was sent in November. We still haven't heard back. But if the Fifth Circuit ends up saying that states don't have to abide by the federal EMTALA law and the Ninth Circuit says the opposite, then the Supreme Court will have to step in to settle the situation. That would be ironic, of course, because in the Dobbs ruling uh, overturning Roe, Justice Alito said he hoped that the court wouldn't have to keep adjudicating abortion cases. That's apparently not how things are turning out. Julie Rovner of KFF Health News. Thank you. Thank you. You can get an Uber in about 70 countries. The ride-hailing app and its rivals have changed the way many of us get around. But do not let London cabbies hear you say that. Drivers of the city's famous black cabs have long led a resistance to Uber. Now the company is launching a new campaign aimed at winning them over. We sent NPR's London correspondent Lauren Freyer to see whether it'll work. It feels like Uber is everywhere. In Japan. Uber taxi. In Latin America. Uber one. In India. Uber. Yeah, India right. And here in London, where the company says it has about 50,000 drivers, making this its biggest market behind New York. But utter that word, Uber, within earshot of a taxi stand here. Oh, Uber, we don't care about them. You don't care? No, I don't care. We don't... They don't know where they're doing, they don't know where they're going. And half of them are probably not insured. When people hail down, they want you to be turning around and going in the right direction within the first 10, 20 seconds. The sat-nav can't do that. That's Lewis Sarah, Chris Hughes, and Daniel Frederick, three of the nearly 18,000 drivers of London's black cabs, bulbous retro vehicles, also known as hackney carriages. These professionals consider themselves among the last obstacles to Uber's global domination. Uh, yeah, we are the quality top line because we've done the knowledge of London. The world-famous you know, knowledge of London is what Frederick is talking about there. First introduced in 1865, the knowledge is an encyclopedic test of 25,000 London streets and 20,000 landmarks, which you've got to memorize to get a taxi license here. It takes an average of three or four years, and there's still a 70% fail rate. Right, Kensington Back Road, forward Bembridge Road, left Norton Hill Gate, White Ballast Gardens Terrace. In a classroom behind London's Euston Station, aspiring cabbies memorize routes, and they pour over giant laminated street maps on easels. If I say the word Uber in this room, are people going to gasp? There's a boo over there, yeah? But it's not like they're Luddites, says Gert Kretov, who runs this cram school for the knowledge. We're not threatened by technology. We use technology on the knowledge. We have apps to help you study, digital maps, everything like that. Kretov hates Uber because he says it takes too much commission, upwards of 25% from drivers. For years, Uber cut into his enrollment. But students are coming back, he says. Technology and the brain power brain is always winning. There is nothing like a knowledgeable cab driver and if it's constant road closures, that driver will quickly figure out the best solution. That's why the knowledge is important, quick thinking. London's taxi unions have staged protests against Uber. Drivers applauded when London's regulator revoked Uber's license a few times over the years. It's since been reinstated and now Uber is offering them an olive branch. Keep your black caps, keep your knowledge, 
but use the app too, for free, at least for the first six months, starting in 2024. They just need to download the app, upload some of their basic documentation, and they receive the meet a fare. Andrew Brem is the head of Uber in the UK, and his message to London cabbies is, don't let nostalgia hold you back. The knowledge that the London cab drivers pass, huge respect for that. And the physical vehicles, they're beautiful. So that's all great stuff. But I would say this is absolutely an opportunity for drivers to earn additional fares. They're business people and they want to be busy. Uber is already doing this with New York's yellow cabs and with taxis in San Francisco, Paris, and Rome. It's made similar offers to London cabbies before, but withdrew them for lack of, shall we say, enthusiasm among drivers. The verdict this time, says London cabbie Chris Hughes, is... Waste of money. Waste of money. They can give us double the fares that they're charging, but nobody, nobody... We've seen on Facebook, I think one guy has signed up for it, and he's been chased out of town. The world's biggest ride-sharing app may have a hard time winning over these British stalwarts. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. Celtics play Friday. Lots of clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures just below freezing. Tomorrow may take a while, but the sun should burn through the clouds. Temperatures in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny and colder. And then clouds return for Saturday and produce some snow and rain on Sunday. Should be a blustery day with highs close to 40 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Olin College of Engineering seeking applicants to join their community of talented, curious, energetic students and faculty, olin.edu, and Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. Stress can be a chronic problem that makes it harder to focus on the good things in life. When there is a negative experience, it becomes sticky in your brain like Velcro. The same amount of good and bad may be happening to you at the same time. But when you're feeling a sense of stress, you hold on to those negative experiences. A new book offers tips for how to reduce stress and achieve your goals. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The White House is facing questions about today's bombing in Iran that left more than 100 people dead. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby was asked whether Israel was behind the attack. I'm not going to speak for another nation. I would just tell you that we have no indication that Israel was in any way involved in this. Two bombs were detonated at an anniversary event honoring Commander Qasem Soleimani, who was killed by a U.S. drone in 2020. Iran's supreme leader is blaming Israel for the attack and is vowing to follow up with a harsh response. The bombing comes nearly three months into the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza and a day after an explosion killed two members of Hamas near Beirut, Lebanon, 
prompting fears of a broader conflict in the region. Ukraine and Russia have announced the largest exchange of prisoners since the war broke out nearly two years ago. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny reports more than 200 Ukrainian soldiers and civilians were returned from Russian captivity in a deal mediated by the United Arab Emirates. Among those returning to Ukraine include soldiers that defended Mariupol and Azovstal and those captured at Snake Island in February of 2022 in the early days of the war, according to Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. In exchange, Russia received 248 soldiers, according to the Minister of Defense there. In their statement, they called the deal, quote, complex. It was facilitated by the United Arab Emirates. The last POW exchange between Russia and Ukraine was in August of 2023. Alyssa Nadwarny, NPR News, Kyiv. Stocks traded lower on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 284 points. The Nasdaq Composite fell 173. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. State lawmakers are back on Beacon Hill today with an agenda that includes gun reform, climate change legislation, and tackling the state budget. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, lawmakers kicked off their new session today with a bit of fanfare. The sergeant-at-arms entered the Senate chamber just after 11 this morning, wearing a top hat and wielding a staff. Mr. President, a committee of the Honorable Senate. Admit the Honorable Committee. Senator Joan Lovely told the assembled lawmakers she just visited the House chamber across the hall. The Honorable Committee has met with the House, and the Speaker sends his greetings, and he's looking forward to a productive session with the Senate for the remainder of our session. House leaders aim to pass several measures, including a sweeping gun control package. But that will take the House and Senate working together, and the Massachusetts legislature is ranked one of the least productive in the country. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. As many as half of Boston's public schools could close in the coming years. That's according to a plan released today by the city and the school district. It was obtained by the Boston Globe. The district is facing issues including declining enrollment and aging infrastructure. The plan proposes fewer schools, but each one would be larger and have more offerings for students. It's not clear right now which schools would close, merge, or be renovated. State data show one in six emergency room visits are now due to respiratory infections, including flu and COVID-19. Larry Madoff is medical director for the Bureau of Infectious Disease at the State Department of Public Health. He says the increase is expected this time of year. We expect to see respiratory infections continue through the spring. If uh, it's like last year and some of our previous years, it will peak in January and tend down in the uh, later winter but every respiratory season is different. A number of hospitals have issued new mask mandates. Madoff says the best protection against serious illness is the latest flu or COVID vaccine. Unhoused families on the state's emergency shelter wait list will begin to move into the UMass Lowell Inn and Conference Center this week. The Conference Center is a former hotel with 250 rooms. State Emergency Assistance Director General Scott Rice says anyone placed at the Inn and Conference Center in downtown Lowell will be pregnant individuals or families with children. 40 degrees now in the Boston area should drop to about 30 degrees overnight tonight. Tomorrow should see some sunshine eventually. Temperatures in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny, only making it to the mid-30s. Looks like a cloudy day on Saturday and then rain and possibly some snow on Sunday. Too early, though, to tell just how much. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. 
With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. We're continuing to track the fallout at Harvard University after the resignation of President Claudine Gay. Her resignation follows a controversial congressional testimony over campus anti-Semitism and amid mounting allegations of plagiarism. For more on how the campus community is reacting, we've called up Miles Herzenhorn. He's managing editor for the university newspaper, The Harvard Crimson. Miles, welcome back. Thank you for having me on. So, Miles, Claudine Gay's resignation comes just months into her tenure as Harvard's president. Tell us what it's been like. What has the reaction been like among students on campus? Students on campus are surprised. It's shocking that the president that everybody expected would last for maybe 10 years or more has resigned before the start of their second semester on the job. When it comes to her resignation itself, there's obviously a bunch of mixed reactions. There are some students who believe that President Gay never got a fair shot. She came under criticism so soon and so early into her tenure that it became impossible to even know what her presidency really could have been like. On the other hand, there are others who believe that the plagiarism allegations, her response to anti-Semitism on campus, and the university's initial statement after Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel was just too damning and that she could not continue in the job. So mixed reactions. Professor Gay had faced allegations of plagiarism in her academic work, like inadequately citing sources. And a few days ago, an anonymous member of the Harvard College Honor Council wrote an op-ed for the Crimson, and they write, and I'm quoting here, when my peers are found responsible for multiple instances of inadequate citation, they are often suspended for an academic year. When the president of their university is found responsible for the same types of infractions, the fellows of the corporation, quote, unanimously state in support of her. Miles, I want to ask you, how are students talking about these plagiarism accusations against Claudine Gay specifically here? Some people viewed these as really damning. And perhaps one of the worst things to emerge about President Claudine Gay is this was something that directly impacted her standing as a scholar. That being said, there are others who believe that these plagiarism allegations were exaggerated that they were part of a plot to oust gay orchestrated by conservative activists and believe that these allegations did not amount to that much. Claudine Gay was the second university president to resign after that congressional hearing last year where she and others really seemed to evade the question of whether students who called for the genocide of Jews should be punished. Now, given some weeks and her resignation, how are students talking about that part of the story? In regards to her specific testimony before Congress, it's very clear that the backlash was not just in Washington. People on campus took note. The leadership at Harvard Hillel, the university's Jewish center, criticized Gay's testimony before Congress. They did not call on her to resign then, but they did question whether she could adequately protect Jewish students on campus given her testimony. 
then. So it's clear it had an impact, but not sure if the conversation has really continued beyond that for now. Miles, what are you and your colleagues at the Crimson going to be paying attention to, especially as most students are preparing to return to campus there in the coming weeks? We are going to be paying very close attention to this story. In particular, we're going to be looking at the student body. What are the reactions going to be like on campus when students return in late January? It's possible that there will be some activism from the student body in response to President Gay's decision to resign. But also we're going to be looking at what's the future looking like for Harvard. Who will become the next permanent president of the university? A search will play out. It will likely take months, if not close to a year. And the Crimson will be at the forefront of that story, just like we were on this one. That's Miles Herzenhorn, managing editor of the Harvard Crimson. Miles, thank you for your time and your team's great reporting. Thank you for having me on again. Okay, it is not often that a teenager becomes a world champion in any sport. But tonight in London, that is a very real possibility for a young man named Luke Littler. Over the past two weeks, he has captured the British public's imagination with his extraordinary run of victories in the World Darts Championship. He is, in fact, competing right now in the final match of the tournament. And Villa Marks joins me from London to explain why this this teenager is turning the sport on its head. Hey, Willem. Hey, Meredith. May I begin by confessing my complete ignorance of darts? <laughs> Would you give us a quick primer, like how it's played, where it's played, who plays it? Yeah, it's a two-player game in which opponents throw small flighted darts around six inches long at a kind of bullseye board with scores based on essentially where those darts land on the board. A single dart throw can score anything from one to 60 points. And the aim in professional matches is to whittle away at a starting score of 501 points. The one who gets to zero fastest wins. Mm, The game began in Britain. It remains really popular here in pubs. You know, you drink a beer, you play some darts, you hang around, you go home. But it's also played in the Republic of Ireland, as well as countries like Australia, like the Netherlands, where successful players have really helped raise the game's profile in recent years. Okay, so tell me more about Luke Littler, 16 years old, playing in tonight's final. What makes him so good? Well, it's obviously not just his age. It's the fact that this is his first major tournament ever and that to reach the final tonight, he's had to defeat men two or three times his age, including multiple former world champions that he's kind of grown up idolizing. He's very entertaining. He's charismatic. In his public appearances during this tournament, he's been completely honest about how entirely blown away he's been by his own success. He began playing when he was just a year and a half, 18 months old, on a magnetic board. And in some ways, he's you know not unlike a lot of other teenagers his age. He's talked about the fact he eats a pizza every evening before his match. <laughs> but at the same time... Yeah. These matches, they're drawing record viewing figures in the UK for what is still essentially quite a niche sport, at least on TV. Yeah, um, you said he's already beaten a lot of the, the people he grew up idolizing. What do his fellow players say about him? Well, you know, he's a, he's a sensation who's already transcending a sport, but other players watching him say his technique, his strategy, they go against the fact that he's just 16. He's started this tournament with a global rank of, ranking of 164th in the world. He, he says he's sort of trying to stay relaxed and focused. Observers say he's showing extraordinary composure during really tense moments, often choosing to make difficult throws at moments when many others would go for easier options. And those that know his play well say he kind of thrives on this pressure. 
and beyond his technique it's the self-confidence that's always set him apart from his own contemporaries and that does now seem to be working in the adult world as well he's beaten four men in the top 30 in his sport to get there tonight including one five-time champion that's just amazing i mean it it prompts the question of whether he wins tonight or not in the coming hours whether this run of success is going to really raise the profile of his sport well, it is. It's attracting record viewing figures for this tournament compared to major soccer matches in the UK. He's winning over hundreds of fans on social media platforms like Instagram. We're seeing tickets for tonight's match surging in value and stores selling darts. They've reported a spike in sales as well. Wow. Willa Marks in London watching all the darts action. Thank you. Thanks so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. An Arkansas bill allowing for a so-called monument to the unborn on Arkansas state capitol grounds was signed into law last spring. The monument is intended to memorialize the abortions performed in the state during the nearly 50 years the procedure was legal under Roe v. Wade. But the law does not specify what an appropriate memorial would look like. And as Little Rock Public Radio's Josie Lenora reports, this has led to some debate and discomfort over what design to used for such a public and political piece of art. The memorial is supposed to celebrate the end of legal abortion in the state. Here's Senator Kim Hammer, a Republican lawmaker from the suburbs of Little Rock, giving his pitch for the monument to the Arkansas legislature back in March. It is a monument that is recognizing the 236,243-plus babies that uh, were never born as a result of Roe versus Wade. Hammer says that number, which is also included in the text of the law without citation, comes from the Department of Health. NPR was unable to independently verify. In his speech, Hammer went on to say the monument would be, quote, tastefully done. I just don't know how you tastefully immortalize an aborted fetus. Tony Lareris is on the commission tasked with recommending a final design to the Secretary of State, who will ultimately decide. After the passage, the public was allowed to submit artistic ideas for the monument, which will be funded with private donations, not taxpayer dollars. One proposal is for a marble sarcophagus carved with wombs. Another shows a blindfolded fetus balanced on an umbilical cord pedestal, one of several fetus statue designs. Lareris was uncomfortable with the task his group was given. I was just dumbfounded that we would even consider some of those monuments on our capital. At a December meeting, the commission decided to pair two of the submissions, a living wall of greenery and a plaque with quotes from the Bible and the Arkansas Constitution. I'll never forget the day that we passed the trigger bill here in Arkansas. Republican Representative Mary Bentley, who co-sponsored the monument bill, says it will celebrate the enactment of Arkansas's near-total abortion ban. When we passed that bill, I thought, Lord, I don't know if I'll ever be alive to see the day that we end the slaughter of innocent children in our nation. Bentley said a monument to the unborn will fit in well next to civil rights monuments and memorials for fallen soldiers already on the Capitol grounds. A bill to create a monument passed easily. Republicans make up a supermajority in the legislature, meaning their bills almost always become law. Only two Republicans spoke against it. One was Representative Steve Unger, who has advocated against abortion his entire career. From a Christian perspective, this has the look and feel of spiking the football. It looks like gloating. The Jesus that I know who was called friend of sinners never did that. 
One Democrat also spoke against the bill, Senator Clark Tucker. He noted that not all Arkansans are anti-abortion. This is injecting a contentious political issue to the grounds of the state capitol, and it's doing so in a way that I would have to imagine is going to be very painful for a lot of women who have gotten abortions in the last 50 years. The monument will most likely be placed near a statue of the Ten Commandments and a Confederate war memorial, also on the state capitol grounds. It'll be a while before anyone gets to see it, though. The fundraising effort hasn't even started yet. For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora in Little Rock. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Republicans in Maine are calling for the impeachment of the state secretary of state after she decided Donald Trump is not eligible to run for office. Politics and much more coming up after 5 o'clock here at 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast, cloudy and chilly overnight tonight. Clouds should last through the night, and we should wake up to clouds tomorrow morning, about 30 degrees overnight. For tomorrow, we should see some sunshine eventually. High temperatures in the low 40s. It's 449. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. I'm Robin Young. A new investigation finds dying broke is what most older Americans are doing, and caring for a loved one is a real struggle. To deal with the emotional issues, which are huge, to deal with what this does to family dynamics, and then to add on top of it the affordability or lack thereof makes it just confounding to many people. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Two new reports show Massachusetts is among the states losing the most residents. A report from moving company U-Haul finds base, the Bay State has the second largest net loss of residents in the country. Another from United Van Lines ranks it seventh for outbound residents. The U-Haul survey ranks Texas as the top state where Americans are moving. United Van Lines ranks Vermont as the number one inbound state. This is WBUR 40 degrees in Boston. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The civil rights activist Elmore Nickelberry has died at the age of 92. Nickelberry was among the longest surviving Memphis sanitation workers who fought for better working conditions in 1968. And he marched with the Reverend Martin Luther King during the sanitation workers' strike that led to King's assassination. NPR's Debbie Elliott has this remembrance. Collecting trash was a nasty and thankless job in Memphis back in the 1950s and 60s, as Elmore Nickelberry told me in 2018. When I first started, it was rough. I had to tow tubs on my head, on my shoulder, under my arms. I mean, you put it on your head, all that stuff ran down your shoulder. 
After hauling trash tubs all day, he'd get maggots in his clothes and shoes. But the city didn't let black sanitation workers clean up before going home. The showers were reserved for white workers. So Nickelberry would take the bus home a filthy mess. Most of the time they would call us boys. We'd get on the bus, they were looking at that old garbage man. And I know I wasn't on garbage man, I just work in garbage. Garbage work was also dangerous work. In early 1968, two black trash collectors were crushed to death when they climbed into the back of a garbage truck to escape a storm. Workers organized to demand better conditions and higher pay. When the city rejected their demands, they walked off the job, marching downtown with signs that declared, I am a man. Here's how Nickelberry described their mission to NPR in 2017. We were fighting for equal payment and equal rights from the sanitation department. And at the invitation of the Reverend James Lawson, a Memphis pastor instrumental in the civil rights movement, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. came to town to support the sanitation workers' strike. He encouraged them to keep up the fight despite violent resistance and hundreds of arrests. We've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. A day after that speech, King was assassinated. Fifty years later, Nickelberry was still working for the sanitation department, driving his truck along a route that passed the Lorraine Motel, where King was killed. He called King one of the greatest men he'd ever known. A man coming to Memphis, Martin Luther coming to Memphis to help him, help the sanitation department. And then the man get killed. I don't like to talk about it. You feel mighty bad, a man come help you, and then he come kill That's bad. After King's assassination, the workers got showers, uniforms, better wages, and African-American supervisors. This was the first Black Lives Matter. Civil rights attorney Van Turner is the former president of the Memphis NAACP. He says Nickelberry and others who dared declare, I am a man, took great risk to challenge the system. He says Nickelberry was long an inspiring figure at annual MLK events in Memphis. Dinegrant man, very humble, soft-spoken, but he had a, a fire in his belly and he and he still, you know, was such a leader for all of us who come behind him and stood on his shoulders. Elmore Nickelberry retired from the Memphis Sanitation Department in 2018 after 64 years of service. You have a good night now. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. There were a lot of great video games that came out last year. So many, in fact, that we cannot stay quiet about it. Our colleagues at NPR are here with some of their favorite video games of 2023. My name is Nina Phil, and we are going to be discussing Hello Kitty Island Adventure. Hello! Ready for a vacation at Big Adventures Park? You do all the normal cozy gaming things like fishing, crafting, of course, you make friends with all the Sanrio characters, and who doesn't want to be best friends with all of them? Just really liked being able to pick up and put down a game whenever I wanted to, and that's what I like. There's no pressure. My name is Regina Barber. 
I am the scientist in residence at NPR, and I want to talk about Dave the Diver because it surprised me that I love it so much. Dave the Diver opens with a, a man who is living on the beach and he gets a call from his friend and his friend's like, I have this awesome business venture. And what you're gonna do is, cause I know you love diving, you're gonna dive into the ocean and get fish for this sushi restaurant that I've opened. And then the, the plot starts to thicken. You start to realize that your friend has weird connections with eco-terrorists and, and like, and then there's pirates around. This game is for people who liked games like Harvest Moon. There is some growing of crops. It's cute, but it also hits like kind of a cooking itch. Like if you have any game that has any food in it whatsoever, like this is gonna do it for you. Hey, I'm James Master Marino, Here and Now producer and NPR gaming lead. We're going to be talking about Alan Wake 2, which was my favorite horror game out of a year with great horror games. In a horror story, they're only victims and monsters. It's a story about stories. It's a story about how we frame stories, how we position ourselves as heroes within it. How do you run from an idea, from a story that lives in your head? And it's one of those games that you just want to think about for a while. Like after the credits rolled, I couldn't believe what I had experienced. I just kind of like sat there and like was like, I, I have to play that again. I have to see what's going on with this like insane story. My name is Rakesha Chase Jackson. I am a project manager on the member partnership team at NPR. Um, and the game we're talking about is A Space for the Unbound. You are playing as two high schoolers in the 90s in Indonesia, and it seems like it's the end of their school year. They're planning a festival, they're going on dates, and you're just living through their life. This is definitely a game I would recommend if you're looking for a game with a really strong story. My name is Jonas Adams. I'm the director of All Things Considered at NPR, and today we're talking about Mortal Kombat. The time draws near for the Grand Martial Arts Tournament. The thing I like about Mortal Kombat, ever since it came out, it was one of the games that just completely grabbed your attention in the arcade because they went further than everybody else. My favorite player has always been Scorpion. Whether or not it has something to do with me being a Scorpio is, I don't know, maybe it does have a lot to do with it, maybe it doesn't. Our reaction to this version of Mortal Kombat that just recently came out, Mortal Kombat 1, they figured out a way to keep the game going and keep it updated and keeping it fresh so that you're not just sitting around just fighting to get your friends all the time. That was our director, Jonas Adams, keeping it fresh as always. We also heard from NPR's Nina Phil, Regina Barber, James Mastromarino, and Rakesha Chase Jackson, all talking about their favorite video games of 2023. You'll find even more recommendations at NPR.org. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at LodestarFoundation.org. 
from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday evening. Coming to City Space tomorrow, Thursday night, a conversation about redefining wellness with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, author of Real Self-Care. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. Lots of clouds around this evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures about 30 overnight. And for tomorrow, waking up with overcast skies should have sunshine gradually push its way in. High temperatures in the low 40s. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Palestinians condemned the killing of Hamas's second-in-command in Lebanon last night. Hundreds took to the streets and shut down stores in the West Bank in protest. The U.S. says it's not responsible for the attack and doesn't believe Israel is either. Today is Wednesday, January 3rd, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, it's a convulsive time for Harvard University after its president, Claudine Gay, resigned yesterday. Coming up this hour, a crisis management leader says even though Gay has left the front office, the controversies around her departure remain. A Japanese Airlines passenger jet erupted into flames this week after it collided with a small plane on a runway in Tokyo. Somehow everyone on the jet survived. The assertive manner in which the crew responded helped, but... The uh, passengers on the aircraft were very orderly. The latest on the cause of the crash coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The leader of Hezbollah is condemning Tuesday's assassination of a senior Hamas official in southern Beirut. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports from Tel Aviv, the suspected Israeli airstrike against the Hamas leader has raised concerns the war in Gaza could broaden throughout the region. In a televised address, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah called the assassination of Hamas's deputy political leader, Salah Aruri, an act of flagrant Israeli aggression and warned the killing will not pass without punishment. Israel has not taken responsibility, but if confirmed, Aruri's death in Beirut would mark the first assassination of a senior Hamas leader outside of Gaza since the October 7th attack on Israel. Nasrallah said it would be very costly for Israel if it wanted to open a new front in Lebanon. There are already daily skirmishes between Israel and Iran-backed Hezbollah along the Israel-Lebanon border. Jackie Northam, NPR News. Tel Aviv. House Speaker Mike Johnson is leading a delegation of around 60 fellow Republicans to the U.S.-Mexico border. The trip to Eagle Pass, Texas, coming as demands for stricter border enforcement continue to come from the GOP. Republicans have been seeking the concession from President Biden and Democrats in exchange for a wartime funding request for Ukraine. A bill passed by House Republicans in May without a single Democratic vote would call for extensions to the current border wall and new restrictions for asylum seekers. A federal judge in New York is expected to release documents any time now, naming more than 150 people associated with convicted sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. He died by suicide in 2019. 
Authorities allege his sex trafficking ring victimized minors. NPR's Brian Mann reports the court documents could name some of the world's wealthiest and the most powerful men. Media reports and prior legal documents have shown Epstein associated with bankers, politicians, and royalty. Epstein's victims claim they had sex with some of these men while underage. New documents set to be released will give a clearer picture of Epstein's connections. The anticipated release is already sparking controversy. New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers suggested in a public appearance that talk show host Jimmy Kimmel might be named in the Epstein documents. In a social media post, Kimmel fired back, saying he had no contact with Epstein and threatening to sue. Your reckless words put my family in danger, Kimmel wrote. Brian Mann, NPR News, New York. U.S. employers are posting fewer job openings in November, down slightly from the previous month. Government says there were 8.8 million job openings, though even with the decline, demand is held relatively steady. number of people quitting their jobs fell to its lowest level since February of 2021. Stocks continued their lackluster start for the new year, closing mostly lower on the second official trading day of 2024. The Dow fell 284 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some Harvard University faculty members are defending former President Claudine Gay. Gay stepped down yesterday after new claims of plagiarism in her work surfaced. Randall Kennedy is a professor of Harvard Law. He tells NPR's Morning Edition that although there may have been some mistakes in her work, the allegations were blown out of proportion. Nothing that she has done warranted her ouster. And what's really terrible about this situation is that demagogues, who, by the way, were very open in what they were attempting to do, have succeeded in uh, smearing and in ousting this president. Claudine Gay was the first person of color and the second woman to be president of Harvard. She will stay at the university as a professor. Bergman Women's Hospital is dealing with the fallout of a late December water main break that affected its in vitro fertilization clinic. Hospital officials say stored embryos and eggs are safe in storage tanks. They're working to clean up the area and allow access within the month. But the facility had to reschedule and relocate about 200 egg retrieval and embryo transfer procedures. A Brigham spokesperson says the hospital is working to connect affected patients with mental health and financial support and help with insurance. A New York woman has been indicted on charges that she built a Massachusetts woman out of hundreds of thousands of dollars in an online dating scam. The Plymouth County DA says 42-year-old Nikisha Lewis made a fake dating profile posing as a wealthy CIA agent. Prosecutors say Lewis then posed as the man's assistant and conned the victim into sending her $300,000 over the course of 15 months. She will be arraigned at a later date. Massachusetts plans to use nearly $5 million in public funding to protect endangered right whales. The money will be used to develop new fishing gear that prevents whales from getting entangled. There are fewer than 360 of the endangered whales left. Much of the population has been lost after it gets caught in fishing gear. And professional women's ice hockey is coming back to Massachusetts. Boston's pro women's hockey league team makes its debut tonight against Minnesota. The game will be at 7 o'clock at the Songa Center in Lowell. Jaina Hefford is the new league senior vice president of hockey operations. She says the league's first two games in Canada this week were met with excitement, and she expects the same thing in Lowell. Being such a great sport city, it's certainly a market that 
you know, it was a priority market for us. And so we know there's not a lot of women's professional sports there. And we hope we can really, you know, break into that demand and create a really strong following in Boston for this team. Several of Boston's players have local ties. Three players grew up in New England and several played college hockey in the region. In the forecast overnight tonight, it should be cloudy and cold. Temperatures down around 30 degrees. And for tomorrow, sunshine moving in gradually should be in the low 40s. Friday, sunny, only in the mid-30s. Then for the weekend, cloudy on Saturday. Clouds, maybe some snow and rain on Sunday. 40 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The decision by Maine's top election official to remove former President Trump from the Republican primary ballot has thrust the small state into the national political spotlight. Trump's campaign is challenging that decision, and it's already appealed a similar ruling from the state of Colorado to the U.S. Supreme Court. Kevin Miller is statehouse correspondent with Maine Public and joins us now from the Capitol, Augusta. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Juana. So, Kevin, I understand that this was a big topic of discussion in Maine State House, where you are right now. Yeah, that's right. So state lawmakers were back for the first time this year, and people were definitely talking about it. Uh, Secretary of State Shanna Bellows determined that Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th riots at the U.S. Capitol, that they violated the Constitution's insurrection clause. And she said that makes him ineligible to run for the state's primary which is in just about two months away on Super Tuesday. But Republicans say that Bellows, who's a Democrat, was pretty much biased from the start. Um, I saw some impeached Bellows signs around the state house today, and most of the Republican caucus members turned out for a press conference where leaders really blasted Bellows. And here is Representative Billy Bob Falkingham. This is a terrifying, terrifying, and disastrous decision that you could see copied by other secretary of states and other states that would throw our nation into absolute pandemonium. Yeah, and what they're suggesting here is that Maine's Democratic, that if Maine's Democratic Secretary of State can do this against Trump, what's to stop a Republican election official in another state from removing Biden or other Democrats from the ballot? Right. And Kevin, clearly there are some Republicans who are accusing her of making a politically motivated decision. What else are you hearing from them? Well, they say that she's unfit for office and they're hoping for an impeachment vote as early as next week. But that's really unlikely to go anywhere because Democrats control both chambers of the legislature here. Right. And what about Bellows? How has she been responding to this criticism? Yeah, well, first off, she says she's concerned about the level of threats she's received and harassment of her family and her staff. Uh, But when it comes to the actual ruling, she says that she was pretty much only carrying out her obligation as secretary of state. Uh, Maine's law allows voters to formally challenge whether a candidate should be on a ballot, and five people, which included two Republicans, did that this time around. She held a hearing, she heard arguments, and ultimately she ruled that Trump was ineligible under this post-Civil War amendment that was aimed at keeping Confederate military leaders from holding public office. And uh, here's what Bella said yesterday when I asked her about that impeachment push. The suggestion of impeachment is a political fight to distract people's attention from the legal issues. It's a complete sham. I am confident I followed the law and did my duty under the law. 
But I'll, I'll just add that this is the first time that Maine's law has been used for a presidential candidate. In a sentence or two yesterday, Trump appealed her decision. What comes next? So it goes to Maine's Superior Court and potentially to Maine's highest court, but ultimately probably will end up in the U.S. Supreme Court. That's Kevin Miller with Maine Public. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. We are learning more about the fiery accident on the runway at an airport in Tokyo on Tuesday evening. A Japan Airlines jet smashed into a Japan Coast Guard plane that was preparing to take off. Five people on the Coast Guard plane were killed. 379 passengers and crew were trapped in the cabin of the jumbo jet as it began to fill with smoke. What you're hearing there is a girl sounding polite but insistent, a young girl saying, please get us out quickly in cell phone video posted to social media. Well, remarkably, flight attendants did manage to direct that girl and every other passenger on the plane to safety. NPR's Joel Rose covers transportation. Hey, Joel. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, tell me more about what exactly happened uh, as these two planes collided. Sure. Uh, The Japan Airlines Airbus A350 is coming in for a nighttime landing at Haneda Airport in Tokyo, and it collides on the runway with a much smaller Japan Coast Guard plane that was loaded with supplies for earthquake relief victims, actually. In video footage of this incident, you can see the Coast Guard plane just explode in a giant orange fireball, and the Japan Airlines plane is covered in flames as it slides to a halt on the runway. The rear of that plane is actually on fire, and smoke is spreading inside the cabin. Uh, I want to play you a clip from one of the passengers, William Manzioni, who spoke to Sky News in the UK. On the windows, there were like flames. And then I realized, okay, this is not good, absolutely not good. So I took my son, we got down the slides, and then I turned around and I seen the airplane with the nose completely smashed and the flames all over on the back. Still, the passengers stayed calm for the most part. Not a single person died on the jumbo jet. Apparently not even any major injuries. Just amazing. How did they manage that, this evacuation being completely successful? Safety experts say this is a huge credit to the flight attendants on the plane and and also to the passengers. I talked to Stephen Creamer. He's an airline safety consultant and a former senior director at the International Civil Aviation Organization. Creamer says the entire entire evacuation was incredibly orderly. The crew was clearly well-trained and responded to that training in the way that was intended. People listened to them. They didn't panic. They helped each other. And then, of course, most important, they left things behind and they went and got off the airplane. Creamer says that last part is crucial. Passengers did not try to drag their bulky carry-on luggage with them down the evacuation slides, which is something we have seen in past accidents. That slows everything down in an emergency. I should note, not everything went perfectly here. It took some time for the cabin doors to open. Flight attendants had to use bullhorns and their voices because the PA system didn't work. Japan Airlines said today that it took 18 minutes from the moment of impact to the time the last passenger left the plane. Again, that's not perfect, but still a great outcome under the circumstances. Okay, so that's how they managed to evacuate anyone. What do we know about why this was able to happen in the first place? It's still early in the investigation. Air traffic control tapes appear to show that the Japan Airlines jet did have permission to land and that the Japan Coast Guard plane was not cleared to be on the runway. But there's a lot we just don't know yet, including why the pilots of the Japan Airlines jet didn't see the Coast Guard plane on the runway uh, and whether the warning lights on the runway were working properly. Likely, we will not know the full story for a while. 
But lastly, I just want to emphasize, these events are very rare. Commercial aviation is incredibly safe. That said, we have seen a lot of close calls on runways in the U.S. in recent years. This could easily have been an incident on a runway here instead of in Japan. And Pierre Transportation Correspondent Joel Rose, thank you. You're welcome. More than 70 years ago, what's often called the greatest jazz concert of all time took place in Toronto. Charlie Bird Parker soared with four legendary colleagues while playing a plastic saxophone. It's now on display at the American Jazz Museum in Kansas City, and a reissue of that performance was recently released. Reporter Bill Brownlee has more. The song titled We was part of the 1953 performance that took place at a half-full Massey Hall. It's the only time that five primary architects of bebop were recorded playing together. Trumpeter Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell on piano, bassist Charles Mingus, Max Roach on drums, and Charlie Parker playing a plastic saxophone. The Grafton alto saxophones were made of acrylic plastic and were manufactured for only about 10 years in the 1950s. There were so many things that went wrong during that night. It really wasn't well attended. Charlie Parker had pawned his saxophone. Dina Bennett is a doctor of ethnomusicology and interim director of the American Jazz Museum. He was given the plastic saxophone to play. He was late. Bud Powell had been released from the hospital. Dizzy Gillespie was running behind stage to listen to the boxing match between, I think, Rocky Marciano and Joe Walcott. And then they kept going across the street to the Silver Tavern for drinks. The problems continued after the show. Most of the musicians' checks bounced. And even worse, the recording failed to pick up Mingus's bass. After being persuaded not to destroy the tapes, Mingus overdubbed his instrument in spite of and perhaps partly in recognition of these obstacles, the Penguin Guide to Jazz calls the concert a remarkable experience not to be missed. Here at the American Jazz Museum, the lustrous white saxophone is on display in a case surrounded by concert memorabilia. Bennett marvels at how Parker surmounted the instrument's limitations. I mean, it's made out of 1950s cheap plastic. He didn't miss a beat. And he played it with the dexterity and the genius that he played his brass saxophone. The unlikely instrument is the centerpiece of the museum thanks to the efforts of Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, the mayor of Kansas City at the time. Cleaver huddled with officials and civic leaders when the saxophone was auctioned by Christie's in London in 1994. It was at 3 a.m. in the morning that we met in uh, the office at the church I pastored at the time. The opening bid was $5,000. I remember clearly because I thought, oh, the saxophone probably cost $199, uh, but, you know, we, we got some historic value here, so $5,000 is, is nothing. Before I knew it, we were up to $75,000. Cleaver's winning bid was $144,000. Skeptical pundits and political opponents objected, but Cleaver insists his actions were warranted. Buying that sax was the coup d'etat for Kansas City, and of course now it's not controversial. Parker's one-of-a-kind performance comes through more clearly than ever on the reissue of the Massey Hall concert. For NPR News, 
I'm Bill Brownlee in Kansas City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, legal challenges to the development and use of generative artificial intelligence are piling up. Developers are confronting potential legal minefields involving privacy, cybersecurity, and defamation. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. A January plunge for Wall Street stocks today. The Dow gave up three-quarters of a percent. S&P lost eight-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq dropped about one and two-thirds percent, or two-tenths of a percent, that is. More coming up on Business News, which starts at 6.30. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. And Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for lots of clouds around. Should be a chilly night. Temperatures just about 30 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine should eventually push through the clouds. Temperatures in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny, only making it to the mid-30s. This is WBUR. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. From the Langloth Foundation, supporting justice, equity, and opportunity for all people to foster and sustain safe and healthy communities. Learn more at langloth.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Demonstrators took to the streets of the West Bank city of Ramallah today to protest the killing of a top Hamas official in Beirut Tuesday night. Lebanese state-run media said an Israeli drone carried out the blast, killing a Hamas deputy political leader. Israel denies responsibility, but today the head of Israel's intelligence service, the Mossad, said the agency would hunt down every Hamas member involved in the October 7th attack, which killed about 1,200 people in southern Israel. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. Protesters took over the streets in downtown Ramallah chanting praise for Salah al-Arari, who died in the Tuesday night bombing in the Lebanese capital. Marchers passed shuttered offices and stores, closed as part of a general strike. Hayat Rimawi said Arari's death angered her and asked how can Israel justify killing someone in another country. Which is forbidden in all the world you know, to, uh, to kill anybody in, a, in other region, in other country. Israel is doing everything which is against the law. Rimawi, an elementary school English teacher, says Arari was well known in the West Bank where he was from. But now he is more famous, more than he was. Hezbollah. Hezbollah. 
Marchers called on all militant groups to unite with Hamas, including the Iranian-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen. Shawan Jabirin, a human rights leader, says more killings will not end this conflict. Ending things, you have to act according law. Ending things, you have to act according uh, international justice values and standards. That's, that's the case. He says without justice for Palestinians, peace will not be achieved. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Ramallah. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard University is in the midst of a major crisis. It's looking for a new president after Claudine Gay stepped down yesterday. She took the position just six months ago. Gay's resignation comes after she was sharply criticized for her public response to the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting tensions on campus. Adding to the pressure were accusations that she committed plagiarism in her early academic writing. Simon Barker is a crisis management consultant. He runs a firm in Denver that advises colleges and universities on how to manage crises. He says he has not worked for Harvard. Barker thinks Harvard made several missteps. The first was the president's office's initial response to the Hamas attack on Israel October 7th, in which Gay did not firmly condemn the Hamas attacks or address student tensions on campus. The initial communication was poor and was slow. Their credibility was subsequently undermined, not just Harvard, but others, by the need to restate, recalibrate, reissue multiple times. Would it have been preferable for her and other university presidents to say nothing? I think in a lot of cases, yes. I think in a lot of cases, there is really no need for them to opine on various political issues. And unfortunately, when any president decides they are kind of going to interpret the world around them, and that is an important part of their role, they will get into these types of troubles. And an issue as polarized and challenging as Israel and Hamas is one where they should have, any school should have gone in eyes wide open as to what they were going to be opening in terms of criticism. So then when there are uh, outbreaks of uh, incidents of Islamophobia or anti-Semitism on campus, which is what happened at Harvard, there, one would think, needs to be some kind of response there. And that is what eventually landed Claudine Gay and the president of MIT and president of University of Pennsylvania before a congressional panel where they underwent scrutiny that some would say was politically intended and poorly responded to by the university presidents. What do you say? It was absolutely clear that it was politically intended. And whether or not they felt there was an option to not engage in what would always be political theater was a decision that I think they could have made. Could could they have decided not to go to Congress? That is certainly an option, and I don't know if it was considered. Columbia, for example, which had a lot of different issues on their campus, as I understand it, declined the opportunity. It was never going to be a favorable hearing. That said, they did not prepare in a manner that was sufficient for the moment. How did they prepare? Uh, Who prepared them? And why was it done, in your view, so poorly? I think in a lot of situations, there is a tendency to focus on a narrow legalistic frame and to rely on that legal frame when we're dealing with fundamentally a reputational issue tends to lead to poor results. So to be specific, the question was put uh, by a Republican congresswoman to Claudine Gay, 
about whether calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment. And Claudine Gay and the presidents of MIT and University of Pennsylvania have been accused of giving an insufficient response. What did they say and what could they have said? What they focused on was the definitions around First Amendment obligations. There are a whole host at most other universities of community principles. There is an expectation in a university environment. They create an environment that is conducive to learning. We don't allow certain things to be said because it creates a hostile workplace. There are a whole host of different reasons why schools don't allow certain things to happen. It's not just about First Amendment perspective. Talk about the community they try to create. Talk about diversity of thought. And they were caught in a, you know, essentially a trap um, to say what they said. On top of that, Claudine Gay is having to defend herself from allegations of plagiarism in her academic work in the past, most of the allegations coming from one anonymous source who is said to be from the far right. Plagiarism, if proven, is wrong. And this is an issue that was apparently known to Harvard officials before Claudine Gay was hired. Where do you place this in the whole realm of what's happening at Harvard? When a president is under the kind of scrutiny and criticism that she was, we have to recognize and anticipate that other unrelated issues are going to be brought to bear. Uh, Maybe unrelated in this case, but very serious when the president of university is accused of plagiarism. Right, because it goes to the heart of academic integrity. That is why it's an important issue. Whether or not these are egregious violations or not, there's quite a lot of discussion around that. It's unclear that the normal process was used. And I think where universities get into trouble is when they circumvent that and essentially fold to political pressure, which is essentially what they have done here. So how does Harvard climb itself out of this situation, which is clearly not going away? It seems there are many issues that will continue to fester. What happens next and what do you think should happen? Well, fundamentally, the removal of the president hasn't changed any of the criticism about whether or not this is a sort of hostile place for Jewish students to work and survive and thrive in an academic environment. It hasn't fundamentally changed any of the conflicts that Harvard has, as other universities, between their First Amendment kind of obligations and creating a diverse, welcoming community. The corporation and board of governors are going to have to look about how this was handled because there's no reason to think some other event couldn't happen on campus tomorrow that the university is going to have to respond to. And it's going to have to respond better than it did this time. Simon Barker is with Blue Moon Consulting Group in Denver, which handles crisis consulting for colleges and universities. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-sized puppetry. January 23rd to 29th, artsemerson.org. 
I'm Robin Young. A new investigation finds dying broke is what most older Americans are doing, and caring for a loved one is a real struggle. To deal with the emotional issues, which are huge, to deal with what this does to family dynamics, and then to add on top of it the affordability or the lack thereof makes it just confounding to many people. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. House Speaker Mike Johnson is leading a Republican delegation to the southern border. Speaking in Eagle Pass, Texas, Johnson said the nation is at a breaking point with record levels of migrants entering the U.S. illegally. Today, we got a first-hand look at the damage and the chaos the border catastrophe is causing in all of our communities. The situation here and across the country is truly unconscionable. We would describe it as both heartbreaking and infuriating. Our communities are overrun. Today's trip comes just hours after House Republicans announced that they're planning to open formal impeachment proceedings against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas for his handling of border enforcement. The nation's first large-scale offshore wind farm hit a historic milestone this week. Barbara Moran from member station WBUR reports it transmitted power to the grid for the first time. The owners of Vineyard Wind say the wind farm off the coast of Massachusetts delivered five megawatts of electricity from one operating turbine late Tuesday night. It came a few days later than planned, but project leaders say they're on track to have five turbines online in a few weeks. Klaus Muller is CEO of Vineyard Wind. Taking this first step is very special, not only for Massachusetts, but for the whole nation. We are now really ready to do offshore wind in a big scale. When completed, owners say Vineyard Wind will generate enough energy to power about 400,000 homes. The Biden administration's goal is to power 10 million homes with offshore wind by the end of the decade. For NPR News, I'm Barbara Moran in Boston. Stocks traded lower today on Wall Street. The Dow was down 284 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin has sent seven potential ballot questions to the legislature. One would do away with the MCAS standardized test as a high school graduation requirement. Others clarify the relationship between rideshare drivers and the companies they work for. Another would raise the minimum wage for tipped workers, and another would legalize psychedelic substances. Galvin expects to send lawmakers three more questions later this month. Legislature has until the end of April to pass the measures. If they don't, organizers will have to collect about 12,000 additional signatures to get the measures on the ballot for November. Harvard Kennedy School professor and former NAACP President Cornell Brooks says he is distressed by the events that led to the resignation of former Harvard President Claudine Gay. She was Harvard's first black president. Brooks tells WBUR's Radio Boston that Gay's opponents accused her of being an affirmative action and diversity hire. And they attach any perceived failings or flaws or uh, mistakes to her being black and her being a woman. 
Gay came under fire for controversial testimony she gave to Congress about anti-Semitism on campus and for allegations of plagiarism. In a resignation letter, Gay said it has been distressing to have doubt cast on her commitment to confronting hate and upholding scholarly rigor. Governor Moore Healy is awarding nearly $400,000 in grants to support local water management projects. State officials say the grants will help communities build infrastructure that's resilient to climate change issues such as drought and extreme precipitation. Abington and Rockland's Joint Water Works, excuse me, got more than a quarter of the money. And Boston City Councillors are starting the new year with bigger paychecks. The councillors approved their own raises last year, but they didn't take effect until this January 1st. The salaries have jumped from just over $103,000 to $115,000, and by 2026, their pay will hit $125,000. Five of the councillors who originally approved those raises are no longer sitting on the council. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for lots of clouds with temperatures just about 30 degrees. For tomorrow, should see some sunshine eventually. Clouds to begin with the day. Lots of sunshine later on. Highs in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny, only making it to the mid-30s. As of now, the weekend is looking cloudy with maybe some snow on Sunday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The world's leading artificial intelligence company is under legal assault. OpenAI, maker of ChatGPT, was most recently sued by the New York Times for copyright infringement, but it's also facing suits from book authors, artists, music labels, and others. NPR tech correspondent Bobby Allen is here to explain. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. What are all these lawsuits against the owner of ChatGPT? What are they all about? Yeah, you know, they all come down to data and how this data is being used. Open AI in developing popular tools like ChatGPT and the image creator Dolly crawled the entire internet for text and images and other material. And from that enormous bucket of data, these AI tools learn and are able to create something new. The big legal question now is, did the company break the law by scraping up parts of the internet that contained copyrighted material? And if they did this, you know, Mary Louise, with a licensing agreement, then it would be fine. But instead, OpenAI did it without permission and without payment. I talked to Ed Claris about this. He's a former general counsel at The New Yorker, and he's an expert in intellectual property law. You can't just go and steal huge archives and then say it's too hard for me to get rid of it. It seems kind of contrary to the rule of law. Contrary to the rule of law. Okay, what is OpenAI saying to defend itself? Yeah, executives there have long pointed to something in the law known as fair use doctrine, and it says that if copyrighted material is quoted or used in some way in news reporting, research, criticism, you don't need to ask for permission or pay anyone. But, you know, there are two tests of fair use that are going to be really important here. And the first is, are you transforming the original work into something new 
And does that new thing you're creating compete with the original? Now, OpenAI says ChatGPT's answers are something new and that it is not competing with the New York Times. IP lawyer Clara says OpenAI may have a hard time proving to courts that ChatGPT's responses that include New York Times article snippets are truly transformative. There needs to be some commentary, some additional perspective. A person using the the uh, original content on a fair use basis would have to add something new. Bobby, I'm thinking ChatGPT, OpenAI, obviously not the only players in the AI field. What effect could these court cases have for the whole industry? Yeah, you know, the New York Times in its suit claims that OpenAI took millions of its articles illegally. If a judge sides with the Times, OpenAI could be on the hook for billions of dollars. The Times also asks the court to order OpenAI to destroy any of its models that use work from the Times. That could potentially upend the company and upend the entire AI industry in a, in a really big way because this is how all of these AI companies build their underlying models. Um, other AI companies are, of course, being sued for copyright infringement, and those suing include Getty Images over licensed photos, Universal Music over copyrighted song lyrics, authors and comedians have taken AI companies to courts. You know, Mary Louise, on the other side of this, though, there's publishers like the Associated Press and Axel Springer, which publishes Politico, which are deciding to take another tack, which is striking licensing deal with OpenAI. But for those, you know, deciding to not play nice with AI companies, I think it's going to take some time before the courts and likely the U.S. Supreme Court really clarifies here what's allowed and what's not. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks, Mary Louise. And Parish Bobby Allen. Like a lot of cities, Denver is struggling to keep up with tens of thousands of migrants looking for opportunity after crossing the southwestern border. The city has expanded its network of shelters, but it is not enough. Tent colonies have sprung up on streets and parks and public spaces where people try to survive frigid Rocky Mountain winter nights. Recently, a lonely widow opened her door to help, and now about 300 people have found sanctuary. Colorado Public Radio's Kevin Beatty has her story. Pedro, did you eat? Young Cha Prince, age 73, has been up since dawn, as usual, making breakfast for guests staying in her old motel in North Denver. I get up four o'clock in the morning, make a coffee, make an egg, bacon, bacon and cheese. Prince has done this for decades. She and her husband bought the Western Motor Inn on Vasquez Boulevard in 2007. He died a few years ago, as did her son after battling cancer. She's been preparing to shut this motel down, go back to her childhood home of South Korea, and live as a missionary. Business wasn't very good, and she says she was painfully lonely. I miss my family, I think. But a few weeks ago, a stranger showed up in the middle of the night. Christina Ascension, a private investigator and Denver native, was at a nearby convenience store where she'd met six boys from Venezuela. They'd been sleeping outside, so she brought them, shivering, to the Western Motor Inn. She was so good. She opened her door. I was so afraid that she was going to say no because I had been sitting at 7-Eleven for five hours, calling people, asking people to help. Prince said they could stay for free. Ascension took the boys to grab their bags where they'd set up camp and discovered scores more people, men, women, and children, hunkered down in the cold. She went back to the motel and asked Prince, what did she have to do to get the rest of these people inside? Prince just said, bring them over. I started bringing people and she was like, it's okay, just, you know, come back and help the next day. 
Like, I went home and I was like, God, thank you so much for her. Prince's motel was full in a few days, more than 300 people sheltering in her aging rooms. Ascension tried to help get some into regular shelters, but she was turned away over and over again. More than 30,000 migrants have arrived in town in 2023, adding to the thousands of unhoused locals already clamoring for somewhere to sleep. So everyone just stayed. They've been living here together, eating together, celebrating together. Prince makes three meals a day with food that she bought or that was donated by a group of moms organized on Facebook. Dana Miller, a member of that group, helped bring Christmas presents and throw this party for the children living here. It's an act of love, bringing them food and clothing and all sorts of things, including Christmas, brings a little joy to people who've been through a pretty traumatic journey. So we're honored to be here to help brighten their holiday season. But the motel has attracted some unwelcome attention, too. Inspectors from the health department have been posting violations on Prince's door for months for rooms with broken sinks, toilets, and doors. On top of the time and money she spent to keep these people safe, she's also contending with at least $40,000 in fines. The city said we got too many people here. You would like the city to help you make this more official? Yes. Whether her finances become unmanageable or a long quarter developer buys the place, everyone here knows this will not last forever. It'll be a sad day when everyone scatters. The migrants are all looking for permanent housing, but it's likely that more will arrive to take their places. Young Cha Prince, though, has found renewed purpose and meaning in caring for everyone. They're so happy here. Everybody called me mama, so I need it. I was lonely two years without my son. Her guests feel the same. Marvin Torrealba is from Venezuela and has been living here since Prince opened her doors. I already feel like this is my home, he says. And all of us here, we treat each other like family. That's why we have to take advantage of the time that we're here. So while it lasts, this accidental, unusual family is taking comfort in each other's company as the nights get colder and the city's migration crisis continues outside. Anybody hungry? Come in. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Beatty in Denver. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You may have heard a lot of advertising about Medicare Advantage plans. 2024 Medicare Advantage plans are now available so everyone on Medicare can call to see if a Medicare Advantage These Medicare Advantage plans are private insurance that Americans 65 and older can opt for instead of traditional Medicare. Lots of Americans are signing up. It is an open enrollment period from now through March. But as Sarah Jane Triple with our partner KFF Health News reports, some people regret enrolling in the program and then have trouble getting out. Back in 2016, when Richard Timmons first signed up for Medicare, he went to a free informational seminar with an insurance agent. Basically, he really promoted Medicare Advantage. He just said, well, look, it's less expensive. It's broader in coverage. For Timmons, it made economic sense to sign up for Medicare Advantage instead of traditional Medicare. And that worked out great for a while. Then he found a small bump on the back of his right ear. I have a family history of melanoma, so I was kind of tuned into that and thinking about that. But it took him a long time to see the right specialist in his Medicare Advantage network, and getting the paperwork in order was confusing. It was starting to, it started to grow and uh, started to become rather painful. By the time Timmons finally saw an oncologist, the lesion had grown to the size of a dime. His right earlobe needed to be removed. 
He thinks getting care using traditional Medicare would have been faster and easier. And David Myers at Brown University School of Public Health says he's probably right. You can see any provider you want. There are many less sort of restrictions on care. You get a lot more freedom with traditional Medicare. Timmons wishes he could switch. But there's a catch. Would I go back to traditional Medicare if it was not cost prohibitive? Absolutely. Traditional Medicare premiums average about $170 a month. And while enrollees on Medicare Advantage plans still pay that premium, the monthly costs can be more affordable. That's because plan enrollees often don't have to pay for extra prescription coverage. They also don't have to buy supplemental insurance, usually called Medigap. That supplemental insurance is needed because, unlike Medicare Advantage plans, traditional Medicare doesn't cap out-of-pocket cost. The thing is, Timmons might not be able to get a Medigap policy anymore. Here's David Lipschutz, Associate Director of the Center for Medicare Advocacy. Medigap is one of the few types of insurance that can exclude you based upon pre-existing conditions unless you enroll during certain designated times. That designated time is primarily when you first sign up for Medicare. But since Timmons enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan instead of traditional Medicare, and he has a pre-existing condition, he could be denied Medigap or charged a lot more for it. While federal law generally prohibits insurers from denying people coverage because of pre-existing conditions, Medigap is an exception. Lip shuts again. It's a lot easier to get and stay in a Medicare Advantage plan, but a lot harder to get out and uh, pick up a Medigap plan, depending upon where you are. Only four states require Medigap insurers to cover applicants, regardless of age or health. But Timmons lives in Washington state, which isn't one of them. He wants people to know. You can get screwed. If you're on Medicare Advantage, the advantage kind of disappears once you need them. In the meantime, Timmons worries. There's a chance that his cancer could come back. And he'll be trapped on Medicare Advantage if it does. So he's focusing on what he can control. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm vegetarian. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I try to get exercise as much as possible. But he knows it might not be enough. That was Sarah Jane Tribble with our partner, KFF Health News. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday evening. Coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered, the extremely strict abortion bans in Texas have won again in federal courts. That story and much more still ahead. Numerous closures on the Green Line in effect as of today. There is no service between Kenmore Square and North Station. On the E branch, the closure extends to Heath Street. On the B branch, it goes to Babcock Street. Those closures will be in effect until the 12th of January. A second round of closures on the same branches will start on the 16th. This is WBUR. Stress can be a chronic problem that makes it harder to focus on the good things in life. When there is a negative experience, it becomes sticky in your brain like Velcro. The same amount of good and bad may be happening to you at the same time. But when you're feeling the sense of stress, you hold on to those negative experiences. A new book offers tips for how to reduce stress and achieve your goals. That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Two new reports show Massachusetts is among the states losing the most residents. A report from the moving company U-Haul finds the Bay State has the second largest net loss of residents in the country. Another from United Van Lines ranks it seventh for outbound residents. The U-Haul survey ranks Texas as the top state where Americans are moving. United Van Lines ranks Vermont as the number one inbound state. 
In the forecast, clouds galore overnight tonight, lows about 30 degrees. Tomorrow we should wake up to gray skies, but we could end up with mainly sunny skies, temperatures in the low 40s. Friday should be sunny and chilly, temperatures in the mid-30s. This is WBUR 38 degrees in Boston at 549. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Former President Donald Trump is headed to the Supreme Court. This afternoon, lawyers for Trump asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on whether he can be disqualified from the primary ballot in Colorado. This move after Colorado's highest court barred him because of his actions related to the storming of the U.S. Capitol. NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson is all over the legal issues at stake. She is with us now to talk him through. Hey, Carrie. Hi there. Okay, what is the former president asking the Supreme Court to do? Donald Trump says this is the first time in American history that judges have prevented voters from casting their ballots for the leading candidate in a presidential election. He says this is of paramount importance. He wants the Supreme Court to quickly reverse the Colorado court and keep him on the primary ballot in that state. Trump is basically arguing Congress should decide who's eligible to run for president and that these judges in the state are taking power away from Congress and disenfranchising millions of voters. And meanwhile, Colorado is one of more than a dozen states that have been considering legal challenges to Trump based on the 14th Amendment. Just remind us the key legal issue here. Uh, the key issue is, revolves around the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War to keep Confederates from returning to government. The provision says people who held office and took an oath and then engaged in insurrection should be disqualified. So far, Trump has been disqualified in Colorado and in Maine. Other states have ruled on procedural grounds or based on state law to keep him on the ballot for now. But the former president says that central part of the 14th Amendment does not apply to him because he took a different oath of office as president and because what happened on January 6, 2021 was not an insurrection. So I know you're here to sort through the legal issues, not the politics, but... Trump is, he's the front runner for the Republican nomination for the White House. What's his campaign saying about all this? A spokesman for the campaign says liberals are allegedly doing all they can to disenfranchise American voters. He says this is an un-American, unconstitutional act of election interference, which cannot stand. And they're asking the high court to move very quickly so there can be a free and fair election this November. Okay. And the nonprofit group that's that has been suing to remove Trump from the ballot, they have already asked the Supreme Court move and move quickly. What is the latest there? That group is Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They want to move fast. They say ballots are being printed soon for absentee voters and military service members and Americans who are overseas. Cruz says this is about the plain text of the Constitution, and it says the law is on their side. Ultimately, the Supreme Court, including three justices appointed by Donald Trump, will decide whether to make that call. While we've got you, Carrie, there's another case, not election, not related to the election, but 
it is involving Donald Trump, and that one could go to the Supreme Court soon. What's that one about? It could. Next week, Trump's lawyers will argue he deserves broad immunity from prosecution before a federal appeals court in Washington. If that court agrees, that would end the felony case against Trump for allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election results. Trump has vowed to appeal that case to the Supreme Court if he loses, which could delay the trial set for March here in Washington, D.C. And Parajustice Correspondent Carrie Johnson, thank you. My pleasure. Not every jazz musician, even the most successful, has a song that hits the pop charts. The pianist Les McCann, who died last Friday at the age of 88, had a big one. Everybody now trying to make it real compared to what... That is McCann's 1969 live recording of Compared to What, a song that became his signature. But he had a long and celebrated career that preceded that hit and followed it. We're joined now by musician and broadcaster Greg Bryant of WRTI-FM in Philadelphia. Greg, welcome. Thank you so much, Juana. It's great to be here. Greg, tell us if you can how McCann came to record this somewhat unlikely hit and just how popular it was. Oh, my goodness. Well, Les McCann and his buddy, Eddie Harris, the saxophonist, were invited to perform at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. They got there a couple of days before, but their band didn't arrive. So the day of the show, the bassist Leroy Vinegar gets there, the drummer Donald Dean, uh, he gets there, but there's no time to rehearse. So there's this brief sound check where Les shows Eddie at the piano two of the songs and then they have to go on. So essentially, compared to what was this uh, tune that Les knew from the songwriter Eugene McDaniels, it was kind of in the air. It was kind of going around uh, in their particular musician circles. Somehow it wasn't a train wreck, although they both thought <laughs> that the performance was so rough around the edges, it would never pass as an album. What about his other hits? How did he follow that incredible signature song up? Well, Juana, his opus uh, was released just a couple of years later, Invitation to Openness. Um, it came to him in a dream, and he was also inspired by uh, Frank Zappa's Freak Out album. Frank was a big Les McCann fan, and he invited Les and Dr. John uh, to participate in this kind of freewheeling improvisation on percussion instruments, not even their native pianos or keyboards. Well, Les was uh, in that spirit, and he had this dream about an expanded, extended ensemble. And he called up the record label and said, I want these guys. I want them in New York by next week. Producer Joel Dorn made it happen. And uh, we have this expansive classic, but it grooves just irreverently hard. Les McCann was one of six kids, and as I understand it, he was somewhat self-taught. What else should we know about his young life? Well, his first instrument was the sousaphone <laughs> in high school. So that love of bass, if you will, uh, stayed with him when he got to the piano and began teaching himself um, gospel and blues and eventually the language of jazz. Uh, that bass was just the bedrock, the benchmark uh, of his sound and his spirit. And Greg, I just want to end by asking you personally, how will you remember Les McCann? As a three-year-old, 
my mind was blown at my Fisher Price turntable from invitation to openness. And I got the chance to tell him that. I remember less as a funny guy and a reverent guy, but a person who uh, really wanted his art to transcend uh, his being. And uh, you all are helping that to happen. So I thank you, Juana, for the interest. Greg Bryant of WRTI-FM in Philadelphia and Sirius XM's Real Jazz. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Juana. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From Cigna Healthcare, a health benefits provider that advocates for better health through every stage of life. Learn more at cigna.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is WBUR, 37 degrees in Boston, cloudy and chilly this evening. Temperatures should be about 30 degrees overnight tonight, and clouds should last through the night and into tomorrow morning. Then eventually the sun should push through the clouds tomorrow, with temperatures reaching the low 40s. Friday should be sunny, only making it to the mid-30s. As of now, the weekend is looking cloudy with some snow likely on Sunday. Too early to say right now just how much gusty winds as well. Weekend highs should be in the mid-30s. 37 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 559. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Iran, two explosions killed more than 100 people and wounded many more. The attacks came one day after a senior Hamas leader was killed in Lebanon. The State Department responded to the explosions in Iran today. Number one, the United States was not involved in any way. And number two, we have no reason to believe that Israel was involved. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the film industry has had three consecutive years of box office gains, but it expects revenues to be sharply down this year. The reason? The after effects of the strikes by writers and actors. And in 2024, Uber will offer its platform to London's black cabs. But cabbies in London need to pass a tough test of the city's entire street geography. They don't think Uber's going to measure up. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has met with a group of scholars and historians to discuss ongoing threats to democracy. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on how Biden is leaning in on a key campaign issue. The White House didn't share who attended the lunch, but Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the meeting was timely as we approach the anniversary of the January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The president has always been clear. I've been clear from this podium as well. Uh, what happened on Jan- January 6 was unprecedented, uh, an attack on our core principles, an attack on our democracy. The meeting coincides with the president also turning up his campaign, and the fight for democracy will be a key part of that effort. Expecting a rematch with former President Donald Trump, the Biden campaign says it will run as if the fate of democracy depends on it. Biden plans to lay out those stakes on the anniversary of the attacks this Saturday in Pennsylvania. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Former President Trump, meanwhile, is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take up a landmark decision by Colorado's top court that had ruled him ineligible to appear on that state's primary ballot. Trump's appeal coming after the Colorado Supreme Court last month barred the former president from the ballot because of his actions before and during the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. The court cited a section of the 14th Amendment, which says candidates are ineligible from holding public office if they've engaged in insurrection. Maine took a similar step, and Trump has appealed that as well. Trump has cast the actions as part of a larger effort by his political opponents to interfere with his 2024 presidential campaign. A mom in Newark, New Jersey, was shot and killed today outside his mosque. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports police are still looking for the shooter and investigating a possible motive. Hassan Sharif was shot around the time of the Muslim dawn prayer near the mosque he led, which has served Newark's Muslim community since 1957. Sharif died hours later at the hospital. In the face of rising hate crimes nationwide, New Jersey had declared January as Muslim Heritage Month. State Attorney General Matthew Platkin said so far there's no evidence Sharif was targeted for his faith, but he recognized that Muslims are feeling anxious. I want every resident of our state to know that we are bringing all of our resources to bear to keep our Muslim friends and neighbors safe, as well as all New Jerseyans safe. He said police have been offering mosques and synagogues extra security since the war between Israel and Hamas began in October. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, New York. At no time in U.S. history has there been this big of a pool of government red ink. The Treasury saying the nation's gross domestic national debt has surpassed $34 trillion. The record high debt comes after GOP lawmakers in the White House agreed to temporarily lift the debt limit last year. Stocks continue to lackluster start to the new year. The Dow fell 284 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Claudine Gay is speaking out about her abrupt resignation as Harvard's president yesterday. The first black leader of Harvard wrote in an opinion piece published in The New York Times in which she said she has faced death threats and has been called a racial epithet in recent weeks. She says she hopes her decision to step down will deny people the chance to further weaponize her presidency. She also acknowledged her mistakes in not immediately denouncing anti-Semitism on campus and not properly making attributions in her scholarly work. But she urged people to be skeptical of the most extreme voices in our culture. The country's first large-scale offshore wind farm hit a historic milestone today, sending its first power to the electric grid. It was a big moment for Vineyard Wind, and it's arriving with a few growing pains. Here's WBR's Barbara Moran. Vineyard Wind was supposed to have five turbines sending power to the grid by the end of 2023. Instead, they have one turbine plugged in, 
a couple of days late. Ken Kimmel is with Avangrid, one of the co-owners of Vineyard Wind. He says they're just being cautious. There was testing, there were issues that had to get resolved in order to inject that first power in the grid. The important thing is it happened and we're now on a path to operating this facility. The company expects to have five turbines operating at full capacity in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. As many as half of all Boston public schools could close in the coming years. That's according to a plan released today by the city and the school district. The district is facing declining enrollment, aging infrastructure, and disparate student offerings at different schools. The plan proposes fewer schools, but each one would be larger and have more offerings. It's not clear when the schools would close, merge, or which schools would close, merge, or be renovated. State lawmakers are back on Beacon Hill today with an agenda that includes gun reform, climate change legislation, and tackling the state budget. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, lawmakers kicked off their new session today with a bit of fanfare. The sergeant-at-arms entered the Senate chamber just after 11 this morning, wearing a top hat and wielding a staff. Mr. President, the committee of the Honorable Senate. Admit the Honorable Committee. Senator Joan Lovely told the assembled lawmakers she just visited the House chamber across the hall. The Honorable Committee has met with the House, and the Speaker sends his greetings, and he's looking forward to a productive session with the Senate for the remainder of our session. House leaders aim to pass several measures, including a sweeping gun control package. But that will take the House and Senate working together, and the Massachusetts legislature is ranked one of the least productive in the country. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. State data show one in six emergency room visits are now due to respiratory infections, including flu and COVID-19. Larry Madoff is medical director for the Bureau of Infectious Disease at the State Department of Public Health. He says the increase is expected this time of year. We expect to see respiratory infections continue through the spring. If uh, it's like last year and some of our previous years, it will peak in January and tend down in the uh, later winter. But every respiratory season is different. A number of hospitals have issued new mask mandates. Madoff says the best protection against serious illness is the latest flu or COVID vaccine. 37 degrees, chilly overnight tonight, down around 30. For tomorrow, should have clouds to start the day. Then lots of sunshine through the afternoon, temperatures in the mid-30s. And then for Friday, sunny skies. As of now, the weekend is looking cloudy, maybe some snow likely on Sunday. Right now, can't say just how much. This is WBUR. It's 6.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Is the war in the Middle East widening? Whether it would eventually expand beyond Israel and Gaza has been a key question since the attack on October 7th. And today we are tracking two major developments that prompt me to ask the question. The first is in Iran, where today a pair of explosions killed more than 100 people and wounded many more. The other in Lebanon, where a senior Hamas leader has been killed. Now, no one has claimed responsibility for either incident. We are going to hear next from two NPR court Correspondence with deep experience covering the region in a moment. Jane Araf, who has just landed in Beirut. But first, NPR's Peter Kenyon, who follows Iran from his base in Istanbul. Hey, Peter. Hi, Mary Louise. So these explosions in Iran come 
on the fourth anniversary of the U.S. assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. And I gather the bombs went off as a procession of people who were marking that anniversary in his hometown as this was underway. What else do we know? Well, officials said the explosions were detonated by remote control uh, as people walked along a street in the southeastern city of Kerman. Uh, emergency crews said many of those injured were in critical condition, suggesting the death toll could rise. Uh, General Soleimani himself was killed in a U.S. drone strike in Iraq in 2020, uh, not far from the Baghdad airport. And since his assassination, Soleimani has been lionized by Iran's leaders as, as a kind of a symbol of the country's resistance to oppression by the West in general, and the United States in particular. And as it happens, this isn't the first time this particular road in Kerman was the scene of casualties. In 2020, a funeral ceremony for General Soleimani on the same road saw a stampede breakout that left 60 people dead. Oh, I remember that terrible tragedy as well. What kind of reaction are we hearing so far from officials in Iran to these explosions today? We are starting to get some reactions. Uh, the head of the judiciary, Khalam Hossein Mosseni Ejei, blamed the attack on, quote, blind-hearted terrorists that are hired by the arrogance. Now, arrogance is a term often used by Iranian officials uh, when they want to condemn the U.S. or other Western countries. And now he also said a massive military and security operation had been launched to discover who was behind the attack. Uh, separately, Iran's interior ministers quoted as saying this was the second of the two explosions that caused the most damage and casualties. And he basically said the whole city was effectively under military control. Okay. And I want to follow on something I heard you say, which is that Soleimani has been lionized since his death as a symbol of resistance to the West. Just re remind people listening how big a deal General Soleimani was in Iran, why an explosion at an event to mark the anniversary of his death would be so sensitive. Well, Qasem Soleimani was a commander of the Quds Force. That's an elite part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which itself is a key part of Iran's military. And now Soleimani joined the IRGC, the Guard Corps, very early, not long after the Islamic Revolution that toppled the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran. Uh, he fought in the nearly decade-long Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, later he turned up in Afghanistan, where he helped the so-called Northern Alliance in its fight against the Taliban. Now, he went on to join the Quds Force, which played a major role in supporting Iran's proxy militias. Uh, these are groups including Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, a number of militias in Iraq. Uh, he was basically seen as playing a central role in Syria as well, helping President Bashar al-Assad when his regime was under attack during the Arab Spring. Soleimani is seen as an important actor in helping to spread Iran's influence in the region and beyond as Tehran developed its technique of using militias in other countries to fight its enemies. Peter Kenyon in Istanbul. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Mary Louise. And let me bring in NPR's Jane Araf on the ground for us tonight in Beirut, Lebanon. Hey, Jane. Hi, Mary Louise. You know, it's funny, I remember covering the fallout from the assassination of General Soleimani with you. Um, four years ago, I was in Iran and you were across the border in Iraq. We come to you today to discuss another assassination there in a suburb of Beirut. This happened yesterday. One of the founders of Hamas's military wing was killed. Israel has not claimed responsibility, but it feels worth noting Israel has vowed to target Hamas officials in other countries, right? They have. And the person who was killed is a pretty big deal. Salah al-Aruri, who was not just the founder of the military wing, but um, instrumental in relations between Hamas and Hezbollah and 
and other countries. He always said he expected to be assassinated. And in fact, he was killed in what the Lebanese government said was an Israeli drone strike. This was on an office building in South Beirut, which really brings that war home to Lebanon in a different way than fighting between Iran-backed Hezbollah and Israel at the border that most people never see. And as you mentioned, Israel had warned after the October 7th start of the war that it would target Hamas officials in other countries. And Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah had said even before the war started that if Israel assassinated any officials in Lebanon, Hezbollah, the major player here, would retaliate. So basically, Mary Louise, as much as people are upset that Israel appears to have launched drone strikes in the capital city, they're perhaps even more afraid that any large-scale Hezbollah retaliation could go spiraling into a conflict that could be become out of control. Yeah. I mean, that that leads me towards some of the bigger questions I have. I mean, how should we think about this, about the danger of Hezbollah, another armed group getting involved in the Israel-Hamas war? Yeah. Well, they're already involved in the sense that Nasrallah says they're doing their bit by attacking Israeli forces across the border with Israel to divert Israeli resources from Gaza. So the two sides have been launching attacks against each other since the war began. But this assassination is a whole different ballgame. And in a speech in Beirut today, one that had been previously scheduled to mark the death of General Soleimani, Uh, The Hezbollah leader accused the U.S. of extending the war in Gaza, and he vowed that Israel could expect a, quote, response and punishment for the assassination of al-Ruri in Beirut. And here he pledges that if the, quote, enemy launches a war on Lebanon, our fighting will be without ceilings or boundaries or rules. And even though it is four years ago since that U.S. airstrike killed Soleimani in Baghdad, that strike, as you saw in Iran and I saw in Iraq, did have huge repercussions, not all of them contributing to stability. So here's my big picture question for you, Jane. As a longtime watcher of the region, do these events, these last couple of days, raise the risk of the current war in the Middle East expanding. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I certainly did not see this coming. And I think we're seeing a different Middle East where some of the balance of power has shifted in the last three months and perhaps become more fragmented. I mean, we've seen an expansion of attacks on U.S. targets by groups aligned with Mm -hmm. Iran, but not necessarily directed by them, Mm -hmm. limits of U.S. influence. But really what we're seeing, I think, for the first time in years is a realization that the lack of Palestinian homeland is deeply destabilizing. Jane Araf in Beirut. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Mary Louise. Whether you thought of it as Barbenheimer or as the bombshell in the bomb, the double whammy of a hot pink comedy. Hi, Barbie. Hi, Ken. And an atom bomb biopic. Let's go recruit some scientists. Led Hollywood to $9 billion of ticket sales in North America last year. That is well ahead of 2022 and pulling closer to healthy pre-pandemic levels. But revenues are expected to be down sharply in the coming year. We asked NPR's Bob Mondello to explain. 
On one level, it's obvious. Overlapping strikes by Hollywood's writers and actors stopped film production cold. You guys ever think about dying? <laughs> from May 2 to November 9, a little over six months. In other words, the film industry lost 50% of its production time in 2023, and that means fewer movies will be ready for theaters in 2024. The studios delayed a few big pictures. See possible futures. Dune 2, for instance. Only fragments. And shuffled some others so there'd be a semblance of normalcy through the holidays, but even with a lot of scrambling to get other films finished, there will be many fewer openings in the next few months. I do see a way. There is a narrow way through. Currently on tap through April are just 31 wide releases, meaning films opening in at least a thousand theaters, compared with 44 a year ago. And fewer movies means revenues will likely be down. This prophecy is how they enslave us! Adding to the problem, theaters this year can't rely on Christmas blockbusters playing themselves out to get through January and February. Spider-Man and Avatar sequels dominated the previous two Christmases and each made hundreds of millions of dollars after New Year's. Wonka, Aquaman, Color Purple didn't bust any blocks in the first place and definitely won't be doing that. Less talked about is the fact that there are fewer cinemas now. Theater chains staring down bankruptcy at the start of the pandemic, when nearly all of the nation's multiplexes were dark for months, permanently closed many of their weaker locations. The Cinema Foundation, an industry group, says that in December of 2019, there were 41,000 screens in North America. Two thousand of them disappeared during the pandemic. Add in franchise fatigue, even for previously indestructible legacy heroes. Give them hell, Indiana Jones! Plus an industry-wide pandemic strategy that pushed audiences to streaming, and there's a steep hill to climb. That said, there are reasons for optimism, even if 2024 is down by the billion dollars that industry analysts are predicting, those same analysts are calling Hollywood's 2025 schedule robust, and indeed it's crammed with potential crowd-pleasers that got pushed back by the strikes. A new Avatar, another Fast and Furious, a new Star Wars… Maybe the business will bounce back. Hey, it's a dream factory. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Coming up tonight in Business News, a recent survey finds that more companies are posting jobs they don't actually plan on filling. A January plunge for Wall Street stocks today. The Dow gave up three-quarters of a percent. S&P lost eight-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq dropped about one and two-tenths of a percent. Several Boston-area locations of the restaurant chain TGI Fridays abruptly closed this week. The company shutting down 36 underperforming restaurants in the Northeast, including in Dedham, Danvers, Mansfield, Seekonk, North Attleboro, and Marlboro. More than 80 percent of employees will be offered jobs at other venues. According to the company's website, the closures will leave seven TGIF restaurants in the state. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. And Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. Sunbugsolar.com.
Cloudy tonight. Tomorrow should take a while, but the sun should burn through. Temperatures in the low 40s. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The extremely strict abortion bans in Texas won again in the federal courts yesterday. The federal Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals sided with the state of Texas and its Attorney General Ken Paxton. It said that the Biden administration cannot enforce a law governing emergency medicine to make sure patients get abortions in cases where their lives are threatened by a pregnancy. Julie Rovner of KFF Health News is here to help us unpack this ruling. Hi, Julie. Hi, how are you? I'm well. So, Julie, what is the emergency medicine law that is at the center of this case, and what did the Biden administration do to spark this challenge from the state of Texas? Well, the law is called EMTALA, which stands for the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. It was passed in 1986, and it requires hospitals that take Medicare, which is almost all of them, to at very least examine any patient who comes to their emergency department, regardless of the patient's ability to pay. Those who are found to have emergency medical conditions, in that case, the ER must provide at very least enough care to stabilize the patient. The law's original intent was to prevent hospitals from turning away patients without health insurance. Now, after the Supreme Court overruled Roe in 2022, the Biden administration reminded hospitals that if that emergency stabilizing treatment requires an abortion, that federal law overrides any state ban. To the contrary, Texas and a couple of anti-abortion medical groups objected to that, saying it was an overreach by the Biden administration to require every emergency room physician basically to perform abortions, and they filed this lawsuit. Okay, and Julie, this ruling, what exactly does it say? Well, basically, the three-judge panel, two judges appointed by President Trump and the third by President George W. Bush, said that Texas was right and the federal government was wrong, that MTALA does not require any specific forms of medical care and that the administration's guidance amounted to an expansion of the law. Now, the ruling could put doctors in Texas in a very difficult spot where providing an emergency abortion could be a violation of state law, but where not providing it could be a violation of federal law. I mean, there are a lot of states in the mix here, but I I understand that this has an interesting comparison to something happening in Idaho. That's right. Very similar situation. That case hasn't been fully argued yet, but the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has put Idaho's abortion ban on hold to the extent that it conflicts with MTALA, which is a win for the Biden Justice Department for the moment, and the opposite of the Texas ruling. And what is likely to happen next now that we have these conflicting decisions? Well, Idaho's attorney general has already asked the Supreme Court to step in and allow Idaho to enforce its ban while the case works its way through the rest of the Court of Appeals. So in a way, this case is already at the Supreme Court. Now, the justices don't have to act on that request. The emergency petition was sent in November. We still haven't heard back. But if the Fifth Circuit ends up saying that states don't have to abide by the federal MTALA law and the Ninth Circuit says the opposite, then the Supreme Court will have to step in to settle the situation. That would be ironic, of course, because in the Dobbs ruling uh, overturning Roe, Justice Alito said he hoped that the court wouldn't have to keep adjudicating abortion cases. That's apparently not how things are turning out. Julie Rovner of KFF Health News. Thank you. Thank you. You can get an Uber in about 70 countries. The ride-hailing app and its rivals have changed the way many of us get around. But do not let London cabbies hear you say that. 
Drivers of the city's famous black cabs have long led a resistance to Uber. Now the company is launching a new campaign aimed at winning them over. We sent NPR's London correspondent Lauren Freyer to see whether it'll work. It feels like Uber is everywhere. In Japan. Uber taxi. In Latin America. Uber one. In India. Uber. Yeah, India ki ride. And here in London, where the company says it has about 50,000 drivers, making this its biggest market behind New York. But utter that word Uber within earshot of a taxi stand here. Oh, Uber, we don't care about them. You don't care? No, I don't care. They don't know where they're doing, they don't know where they're going. And half of them are probably not insured. When people hail down, they want you to be turning around and going in the right direction within the first 10, 20 seconds. The sat-nav can't do that. That's Lewis Sarah, Chris Hughes, and Daniel Frederick, three of the nearly 18,000 drivers of London's black cabs, bulbous retro vehicles, also known as hackney carriages. These professionals consider themselves among the last obstacles to Uber's global domination. Uh, yeah, we are the quality top line because we've done the knowledge of London. The world-famous you know, knowledge of there. London is the what Frederick is talking about there. First introduced in 1865, the knowledge is an encyclopedic test of 25,000 London streets and 20,000 landmarks, which you've got to memorize to get a taxi license here. It takes an average of three or four years, and there's still a 70% fail rate. Right, Kensington Park Road, forward Bembridge Road, left Norton Hill Gate, right Ballas Gardens Terrace. In a classroom behind London's Euston Station, aspiring cabbies memorize routes, and they pour over giant laminated street maps on easels. If I say the word Uber in this room, are people going to gasp? So there's a boo over there? Yeah? But it's not like they're Luddites, says Gert Kretov, who runs this cram school for the knowledge. We're not threatened by technology. We use technology on the knowledge. We have apps to help you study, digital maps, everything like that. Kretov hates Uber because he says it takes too much commission, upwards of 25% from drivers. For years, Uber cut into his enrollment. But students are coming back, he says. Technology and the brain power brain is always winning. There is nothing like a knowledgeable cab driver and if it's constant road closures, that driver will quickly figure out the best solution. That's why the knowledge is important, quick thinking. London's taxi unions have staged protests against Uber. Drivers applauded when London's regulator revoked Uber's license a few times over the years. It's since been reinstated and now Uber is offering them an olive branch. Keep your black caps, keep your knowledge, but use the app too, for free, at least for the first six months, starting in 2024. They just need to download the app, upload some of their basic documentation, and they receive the meter fare. Andrew Brem is the head of Uber in the UK, and his message to London cabbies is, don't let nostalgia hold you back. The knowledge that the London cab drivers pass, huge respect for that. And the physical vehicles, they're beautiful. So that's all great stuff. But I would say this is absolutely an opportunity for drivers to earn additional fares. They're business people and they want to be busy. Uber is already doing this with New York's yellow cabs and with taxis in San Francisco, Paris and Rome. It's made similar offers to London cabbies before, but withdrew them for lack of, shall we say, enthusiasm among drivers. 
The verdict this time, says London cabbie Chris Hughes, is... Waste of money. Waste of money. They can give us double the fares that they're charging, but nobody, nobody... We've seen on Facebook, I think one guy has signed up for it, and he's being chased out of town. The world's biggest ride-sharing app may have a hard time winning over these British stalwarts. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Massachusetts' newest professional women's ice hockey team makes its debut tonight. It'll play home games, including tonight, at the Songa Center in Lowell. Face-off is set for 7 o'clock against Minnesota. Other teams in the brand-new league are Toronto, New York, Montreal, and Ottawa. None of them yet have names. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, Playing in Boston this March, written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexisBroadwayInBoston.com. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast.